first episode. This is the first episode of our new podcast. Yeah, it's really exciting. <laughs> um, I guess we should say what it's called and introduce ourselves. Yeah, it's called Love at First Screening. And I'm Chelsea. I'm Madison. Except on days when I don't want anyone to talk to me, and then I changed my name and don't tell anyone what it is. But for today, at the very least, and for this purpose, I'm Madison. Okay, great. Really <laughs> lovely to meet you, Madison. It's great to meet you, Chelsea. Um, it's really weird. We just met on a Craigslist ad. <laughs> I didn't even know it still existed. Um, yeah. Although, now I can pay off my student loans with the feet pics section, you know? Yeah, really great idea. Sweet. Awesome. So, um, we're here to to discuss romantic comedies because I don't like them so much. And I love them. They are so beautifully horrible. They're amazing. So you like them because they're horrible? Um, I like them in spite of the fact that they're horrible. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, it's the, it's the, um... It's what a diet mom would call a guilty pleasure. Like, she would be like, I love cinnamon rolls, but they're so bad for you. I like rom-coms, but they're not always unproblematic. Okay. Okay. Look, look, we all have problematic faves. It's true. Some people like Lana Del Rey, and that's, well, anyway. I know nothing about Lana Del Rey, so. You know, I knew nothing about her until um, Jamie Loftus talked about her in her Lolita podcast. Shout out. Um, and because obviously, you know, we're a big enough podcast that I can shout out uh, Supreme podcaster, writer, uh, general badass Jamie Loftus. Like, we're besties. Um, but yeah, so some people have problematic faves. That's, that's the punchline there. But yeah, so... I mean, jumping into everything, we are going to be talking about You've Got Mail today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about about the film as as you are the expert and I assume you've seen this film before. I don't not I didn't watch it until except for the purpose of this. So <laughs> I can't tell you the number of times I have watched this. I'm pretty sure that the first time I watched this God, it, I mean, my so I come into rom-coms like some people come into careers um, in that it was my mother's obsession first and just kind of like leaked into my genes. You could call it epi epigenetic trauma if you want. But yeah, so this one I chose because it's a Nora Ephron film. And to me, Nora Ephron um, was sort of like the pinnacle of the rom-com era obviously other people could disagree because she hit that like late 80s into 90s late 90s sort of split there but I it has everything not to quote uh Stefan from SNL but it has everything it has <laughs> New York it has how can you afford that apartment it has the romance it has the Meg Ryan fashion. And so I thought it would be a really good spot to start because if you hated it, it wouldn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, just generally about the film, you have Nora Ephron as the director. She also directed other rom-coms, including my favorite, When Harry Met Sally. Um, and it features 
Meg Ryan as the primary female love interest and Tom Hanks as the primary male love interest, sort of enemies to lovers situation where he's essentially Barnes and Noble. <laughs> and uh, can we say that? Can we say he's Barnes and Noble? Yeah, I think it's fair to say he's Barnes okay. and Noble. And then Meg Ryan is the independent bookstore owner and they fall in love. You could argue maybe it's Stockholm Syndrome, but we'll get into that. So, uh, and then just another fun fact about the film. It's based on a French play called La Parfumerie. Don't, don't judge my French. I don't speak it. I speak some German. And that was later turned into another play that was around in like the 1940s called The Shop Around the Corner, which we get the reference to in what the store that Meg Ryan owns is called. And that one was, I think it was two people who, a man and a woman who worked in like a leathery, a leather shop in Budapest. And they were enemies and they were anonymously writing to each other. And realize that they loved each other. But we bring this into the modern age. The peak most modern age with AOL chat. <laughs> 1998. Yes, yes. They said, you know what sounds like romance? Dial up. There's nothing sexier than that sound. Which we will cut that out. So no one has to hear that in their ears. But yeah, there's nothing sexier than... AOL instant messaging. There's no better place to find love for two people who already had partners. So that's the background. So do you want to take a guess as to whether or not I liked this movie? Watching it again through a critical lens, I think you hated this movie. I did hate this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, hated, I hated it quite a bit. I, I did try to discern... My negative emotions uh, regarding, like, some of the particulars of the book industry and then separate those out from my negative feelings uh, regarding the romantic plot. Um, but I didn't really have any positive emotions <laughs> regarding either, <laughs> so. Oh, God, it's so good. Um, yeah, no, the watching it back with a critical lens, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is actually a really trash movie. Um, and I think that my love for it uh, really comes from the fact that it was a Nora Ephron created and it was Meg Ryan, because in my heart of hearts, Meg Ryan is peak rom-com. And it also has Tom Hanks, who is the physical embodiment of a Norman Rockwell painting. So you don't you don't expect it to be uh, capitalist propaganda trash. Yeah, right. It did feel like propaganda. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to hear my alternate description for this film? I would love to hear it. Okay. As corporate greed stomps out the soul of a small community of book lovers on Manhattan's Upper West Side, a children's bookstore owner unwittingly engages in a dubious digital correspondence with the man determined to crush her mother's legacy. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's like one of the the like the first actual digital catfishes. Yes. 
exactly. Because probably, like, okay, like, I haven't read Cyrano, but I know the basic plot. And, like, I feel like that's the first catfish, probably. But, like, this is, like, the digital age, the first, the first one. I mean, look, I, I'm going to have a lot of questions for you because, uh, I, granted, I didn't know what your feelings about this movie were, were but I was like, does she, does she think this is a, a good, a good romance? Because I, I, I'm really struggling to understand why these two people want to be with each other. So I think in, when I was walking into this, because I'm pretty sure that I rewatched this movie last year, like as recently as last year. Um, I think that my brain just did like a trauma response where it rewrote it and was like, oh my gosh, that's so cute. Because my brain completely blocked out the fact that her mother's store, which is, like you said, her legacy, closed down. And the fact that after he knew that who he was corresponding with was his, like, mortal enemy, the independent bookseller, he then goes on, after her store closes down, he goes on to, like, stalk her and befriend her and is like, oh, tell me about your secret online romance. Oh, well, what if he's married? You should ask him this. What about this? And he, I think that maybe it was, like, a weird attempt at humility for him, which there were several moments where they're like, we can make him human. We can do it. And they didn't. But I think that was one of them where it was supposed to be like this false humility moment. Or, or honestly, it could just be him fucking making fun of her. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like I, I and also, OK, so this film feels kind of unbalanced to me. Like even if I'm 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 just looking at it, its structure and like it's very top heavy with like this rivalry Except that, like, I don't even want to call it a rivalry because I feel like that suggests that they're on equal footing. But, like, we're we're talking about, like, generational wealth versus, like, this very small, like, family-owned business. Like, it's not even general. I mean, it is generational wealth, but it's like a corporation versus this small business. And so they're, they're not on equal footing, like, in the least. Like, it's very clear. Also, okay watching it in 2022 it's very clear that like of course they're gonna go out of business because w that's what happens like I mean there are every year less and less like indie bookstores so you know and I mean I feel like I don't even know like I can't even think of a single children's indie bookstore that's like just children's books and like in the beginning like when they when they have their um which what did I call it in my description notes <laughs> i think it was wealthy men in high towers are the worst <laughs> because they're literally sitting there like relishing the downfall of these bookstores and he mentions like all of the like i think there's like a mystery bookstore there's the children's bookstore and i feel like there's one other one that he mentions or maybe that's the one that's already gone out of business but like they're just like waiting it's like th like they're just watching and they're waiting for the dominoes to fall They've already hit the first one. And so like, it's just a matter of time because they simply cannot compete. So I don't know. It just feels like even from that perspective, even if there were other things about these two characters 
to like help the romance, I still think that I would be upset about the fact that like he is he he has he has crushed her. Um, and I know that they, I feel like they try to address it. Like he, I think that's like right at the end of the film. He's like, if we had just met and like, I wasn't the person that like put you out of business or whatever. So it's like, they tried to acknowledge it, but it feels like, what's that? I think I watched a video on YouTube that was called like, not gaslighting, but they call it like lamp shading where it's like, you point out the problem, but you actually don't do anything to actually fix it. And then you just kind of like keep going. So like you've pointed it out. Everyone knows that it's there. Like we talked about it, but we didn't actually do anything of like significance to like address the actual problem. Yeah, no, just like watching it through, you see all the moments where they try to really humanize him. Like the kid montage where he's like, they're like, you know what appeals to women? A man who knows how to put up with a couple of children for a few hours by buying them things. That. Peak sexiness. Yeah, yeah, that that was titled, Mr. Death to the Indies is actually an okay fella. Because he needs to have kids in his life so he can care about Kathleen's tiny little children's bookstore. Except that he doesn't actually care about it. No, and not only, like, thinking about it, I've only ever gone into one child's bookstore, and it actually happened last year. It's in Monroe, Georgia, and that's, so you know what, shout out to wherever, whatever the fuck that bookstore is called, if you're in Georgia, patronize them, because clearly Fox Books is going to put them out of business. Tom Hanks is going to swoop in. Well, and I, I like, that part was, like, very frustrating, because it was very clear that the, that that is literally the setup so that you know that he's like not the antichrist <laughs> but like but like i i don't know and like look 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 i real i recognize that my own bias in this particular area is that like i care a lot about books and i don't like that um you know you don't have a lot of brick and mortar bookstores anymore um of course in 2022 fox books is Amazon. At least Tom Hanks is hotter than Jeff Bezos could ever dream of being. <laughs> Tom Hanks, to his credit, um, he didn't look like a lizard person, you know? The rest of them, lizard people. Yeah. Oh, wait. So, yeah, I was also going to ask you that, and I don't know if this is... None of these men were particularly, like... I feel like, and I don't know if this is a this is, like, a change in Hollywood, like a shift, but I feel like they look rather normal. Like they don't, you know what I mean? Like they, him and the other guy. Greg um, Kinnear, uh, Frank. Yeah, they look like, uh, yeah, they just look kind of like normal. Whereas I feel like a lot of times in films now, like you have like, you know, you have, what's his face? Channing Tatum or something where like, it's like, you just. Yeah, yeah, like Tom Hanks in this instant, if this was cast today, would probably be, like, Chris Hemsworth. No, Liam. Yeah. He would do it, I feel like. Jamie Dornan. He's like, you know what? For this one, I'm going to be a boss, but keep my clothes on. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Well, but then, like, but, like, the, but, like, the women, like, are all pretty, like, I feel like standard Holly, you know what I mean? Like, like, they felt more... Like, this was the look at the time. So that's why I think, like, maybe it was a shift in Hollywood and, like, the the type of person that they were casting in these roles or something. So I thought that was really interesting. I also was like, well, maybe I just don't think they're... Because I'm like, they all look like my dad. Like, they all look like... They all look like a dad. 
like <laughs> the way they're dressed, like the the types of like ties and button up shirts they're wearing. I'm like, they just look like a dad. And maybe that's why my brain is just like, I also, I mean, he, they are supposed to be older. Like they're not in their twenties. They're in their thirties. Not that that, that, that's not very old, but like, you know, I feel like maybe it's a little bit older than some of the movies you might see. Yeah. Not only that, the number of times that I got completely distracted from what was happening just because Tom Hanks was like folding or perfecting or correcting his suit jacket. Like the scene where they're in the cafe where they're supposed to be meeting for the first time in person. And then he sits down at her table and he fusses with it and then when he moves to the seat behind her he has like this whole thing where he's like adjusting it and trying to like lay it and fold it so it doesn't get creased and I'm like I have no respect for a man who's taking this much time with his suit jacket because I don't even buy dry cleanable clothes that shit can't be thrown in a washer it doesn't need to be on my body but yeah no they all looked either they all looked awkward I think too like they're all yeah they're kind of like the nerdy yeah but on the topic of the nerdy men in this movie how much did you absolutely love frank (laughs) i think my favorite part was when uh tom hanks's girlfriend whose name i will never remember don't ask me to it's patricia you don't have to remember it but it's patricia when she's flattering frank at the dinner party and she compares him to foucault (laughs) like I just want to be in that writer's room where there's this man telling like they're writing the line you are a lone reed in like the sea of capitalism or whatever unwavering and then you have this woman (laughs) who goes oh he's just like Foucault it was amazing also speaking of Frank because he he's kind of like the anti-tech or the anti-internet voice and that's like right off of the bat that's like the first scene that you have is like him going they had to take off like solitaire or something from the computers so that the workers would actually get work done um which is also hilarious because after everyone having been working remotely for like the last few years like there's software that people I mean my company didn't use it but like you can track what they're doing which is like honestly stop oh yeah no I saw this one thing where it was a woman putting her vibrator on a mouse pad so it jiggled the mouse anyway we'll cut that but (laughs) I just had to tell you about that (laughs) no no Madison oh you're right you're right we're keeping that in (laughs) but like they I I was surprised that like more of the conversation wasn't centered on the fact that like the internet like correspondent digital correspondence is fairly new and like a lot of people aren't doing it and like yet nobody seems like weirded out that she met like all of her I mean maybe that's just a credit to her co-workers at the bookstore that they're all just very supportive but like I I kept expecting someone to be like you met him on a chat room like yeah an over 30s chat room remarkable content um no and the whole scene where they're talking about cyber sex in a children's bookstore has <laughs> like this weird dissonance to it. Um, but I think that it brought out, it started to really illuminate uh, who the absolute best character in the entire movie is. 
And before I state who I believe it is, I would like to ask you, who is the best character in this movie? The best character in this movie is Birdie. Correct. And she's <laughs> like, I tried to have cyber sex once, but I just kept getting the busy signal. And she's <laughs> like, did I ever tell you about the time I fell in love with a Spanish fascist dictator? Okay, there were two moments in this movie that I genuinely enjoyed. And one of them was the fallout after she says that she had had this like torrid affair with the Spanish fascist. And then Frank is just like, can't wrap his head around it. And he's like, oh my God, like, who do we t tell about this? Like, meanwhile, Kathleen's like, it happened like literally like 30 years ago or whatever. Exactly. The other one, and this was the only time that this movie lived up to its uh, two-part genre, the second part being comedy. I actually laughed out loud and I... <laughs> Which is right after she... Uh, goes to meet NY152 and she, you know, feels, thinks that she gets, she gets stood up and she's goes to the bookstore in the morning and she's talking to Christina and they're trying to come up with reasons like why he wasn't there. And then George comes in and he looks at the paper and it says that like the rooftop killer was caught and he just like his jaw, like so sincerely, his jaw drops open and he turns around the paper I lost it. That was that was a that was a good joke. That was a good joke that he is the reason he wasn't there is cuz he was actually the rooftop killer and he was in police custody. So, he didn't stand you up and he only had one phone call, so he had to call his attorney. Yes. <laughs> I know and I think it was it was the absolute sincerity of oh god. This is what happened. And then everyone else being like, oh, yeah, shit, you're right. He's definitely the rooftop killer. Who else would be in an over 30s chat room? Oh, God. Yeah, no, that was that was good. That was actually a good joke. I'll I'll give I'll give this movie that that was a good joke. I, I am. Glad. And it and it held up because this is this movie's what, like 20 four yeah it's 24 you know jokes tend to not hold up so well so that that joke held up and i i i'm going on the record saying i think it'll continue to hold up i i agree i agree with I think that it's a solid joke i think that and um birdie birdie and her uh <laughs> spanish dictator were definitely honestly can we scrap this is wild okay um, Nora Ephron is dead, so I don't think that she could be here to direct it. We could try a seance, but I think that we should just scrap You've Got Mail and really focus on birdies toward love affairs because you know they would be great. But I don't necessarily want a movie where she's explaining them either, right? Part of the comedy and part of the allure is the mystery. So I just want, I want, this is my vision. It's set in the bookstore and you you just see views of customers, different customer POVs walking through the store and you just catch snippets of what she says. Like, did I ever tell you about that time that I had a martini with Frank Sinatra and then smashed the glass over his head after I learned that and you walk by? You know that she smashed the glass over his head because he's a freaking child predator, but you don't know that from her. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. It'll have to be a short film. I don't think that that uh, POV style would hold people's interest for very long. And I want to leave them asking more questions, as Birdie would want. No, Birdie, Birdie's great. Honestly, I think that's part of the reason 
that I, I personally didn't enjoy this film is that I think I was far more invested in the relationships in this small bookshop and I just wanted the film to be about that. I didn't care about Joe. I wanted nothing to do with Fox books and I clearly didn't. The romance between them is not good, so I wasn't there for that. I just wanted them to have conversations in the bookstore. I agree. Because, you know, spoiler alert, I, work, I used to work at Barnes & Noble, which is what Fox books is supposed to be. Now for an ad break. This podcast is brought to you by Barnes & Noble. Read more. Shop more. They would like a disclaimer that this is not a real advertisement. They do not support us, condone us, and we are not representatives of the, com- of the company. We do not speak for them. Okay, but that brings me to my point. So so clearly this is trying to, to be like pro, like, well, you know, Fox Books is a lot cheaper than an indie bookstore. But I'm I'm going to come out with you come at you with some math here, so just hold on. Okay. So in the bookstore scene when he's there with the kids, they're told the total comes to $73. And I paused and rewound and watched what they were purchasing because I was like, "Well, he has to be buying a lot of books because this is 1998." So $73. Okay. I looked. By my best estimation, he's purchasing 5 children's paperback books. And one children's pop-up book. So that would be more expensive. Using current costs of children's books, okay? The the paperbacks cost between seven and nine dollars a piece. And because they're not picture books, they're like chapter books, okay. And then the pop-up book would probably cost around twenty dollars. It's pretty small, so I put that at the low end, but it might be maybe ten dollars more. We'll see. So by my best estimation, in twenty twenty-two dollars. He should have only spent between $55 and $65. Adjusted for inflation on the on the high end of that. That's $36 in 1998. They totally made that way more so that you're siding with him. Because yeah, you can cut the cost of like a of like a books. They generally like um just a little inside look. They they generally knock off like 20 to 30% of like your new hard covers. And stuff, and obviously they'll have like other sales, but like not all of the books are discounted. And I'd like to point out that in 2022, Barnes and Noble is having the same problem that the bookshop around the corner is having, because brick and mortar stores are just just crumbling under the weight of e-commerce. So the giants that run the internet and everybody has a subscription, so they're just sitting at home. And nobody's going to a store anymore, you know? So, like, okay. So, so I think, was this book backed by big box books? Was this film produced by, <laughs> like, because, because there's no way that those books cost $73. And I just lost my mind over this fact. And I was like, this is, this is so dumb. So, actually, in the research that I did um, for this, you know, to get, like, the introduction about it's, it was a 1940s American romantic comedy first. Um, I did find that it was actually uh, funded, like produced, by a baby Jeff Bezos. Actually, he wouldn't be a baby then. That's that's a lie. It was a young Jeff Bezos who funded this movie. That's complete bullshit. Okay, I'm like, <laughs> what? What? <laughs> actually, how old was Jeff Bezos in 1980, 1998? In his 40s? 50s? I don't know how old he is. I, you know, here's the thing. Was he born? I know that he was born in 1964. Thanks, Bo Burnham. 
Yeah, so he would have been 34 at the time. He actually could have absolutely funded this endeavor, and now I'm not unconvinced that he didn't. All right, well, maybe he did. Okay, so the tagline of this film that's, like, on the movie part poster is it's, like, someone you pass on the street could already be the love of your life. Except that, like, I feel like that was the concept for this, and they only went so far with it. Like, I feel like they could have written a different movie that actually delivered mail deliver get it anyway (laughs) thank you (laughs) you've got a pun (laughs) um (laughs) um that actually like delivered on that concept but instead like you get bogged down in this like honestly this is a tragedy this this movie just feels tragic like i felt icky watching the whole thing i just made me so mad i just like my blood was boiling and i was just like i kept having to take a break because i'm like i i can't i can't watch this anymore and that's like all before you even get to like the actual like where i have a problem with the romance of it like this is all just the other stuff that's happening and this movie is making me so viscerally angry (laughs) I have never been, I don't know that I've ever been this mad watching a movie. See, now Barnes & Noble really does need to sponsor us to pay for our high blood pressure medication. Because <laughs> we're American, we can't afford it otherwise. <laughs> oh my god. It's just like a giant corporation killing family-owned businesses. And also, like, where I say they, like, overestimate the cost of these books, I also, I, I will also say that the, the flip side of that is, like, Kathleen being like, they're not gonna last it's impersonal, it's big, it's flashy, whatever. I also think that in part, some of that is over. Like she, she's like, people don't know how to recommend books. I think that the difference here is like for her, she grew up in this bookstore. She grew up around these books. She's grown up entrenched in a very specific type of book. So she is able to give recommendations in a way that like someone that this is a part-time job won't be able to. But like, not for nothing, I worked with a lot of people that were able to get, like people, like I worked with book people, like book people work at bookstores, you know? So like, I'm not saying that she's completely wrong, but I also think again, that's like a little bit over-dramatized, but like, I'm more willing to forgive her because I'm wholly on the side of independent bookstores <laughs> here. So I'm, I'm willing to like, let her, her, uh, you know, hyperbole just kind of you know I can forget it I can forgive it that that's very fair um so in terms of how this fits into the rom-com canon because I think that it's actually pretty quintessential rom-com in a lot of ways let's first define what criteria we are using to say whether or not this fits into a rom-com canon. I think we've got about four four elements that make up a rom-com. Yes. All right. So, obviously, let's do the first so the first uh the first part of it. There have to be heavy themes of romantic relationships. There has to be like at least one romantic pairing that is central to the plot. We have that if you don't consider it like weird Stockholm syndrome where she's like, I have nothing left in my life. Let me cling to this one thing that I have. Yeah. So so we definitely, we have a lot of romance. Very romantic movie. Nothing is sexier than a man destroying my mother's legacy and my entire career. The only one that I've known the entire time I've been alive. Exactly. Uh, next, there has to be a central, central plot points conveying courtship. 
this one's a little bit different because it's less datey and more hit me up on AIM. It's love letters. It is, what is the word? Epistolic? Epistolary? That's it. Maybe. It's an epistolary love story. The dates happen through the emails because nothing is sexier than best, comma, Madison. Or in this case, best, comma, Tom Hanks. Ooh, it's getting hot in here. I know, I know. Keep your clothes on, please. By God, this is uh, this is a family-friendly podcast. Fuck, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and the pair has to end up together. There has to be the happy ending, you know? Seals the romance. And then there has to be comedic elements um, for the calm part of the rom-com, where there has to be the snappy dialogue, the physical comedy, or some kind of folly that has no real consequence because this is a comedy. We don't want actions to have realistic consequences. Okay, so first and foremost, we've established this is a very romantic movie. Nothing gets someone in their warm and fuzzies, more hot, more sensual than the destruction of independent bookstores. That's my kink right there. I think I might dump my boyfriend for Tom Hanks. I think his wife Rita would have words and he'd be like, why are you here? How did you find my house? Uh, that was a character I played 24 years ago. Please leave the property. I'm calling the police. And then we have the central plot points conveying courtship of those steamy, steamy emails where you have him quoting the Godfather and her waxing poetic. Very heterosexual relationship defined there. And they end up together and she tells him, I, w I was hoping it would be you. Which I just, I don't understand at all. It, this is where the film, I just makes zero sense to me. But okay, it's there. Uh, it's there, so it qualifies. I just don't agree. <laughs> and then we have the comedic elements um, brought to you by Bertie and George. And not at all by the weird appearance of Tom Hanks' quirky best friend, played by Dave Chappelle, of all people. Oh my god, right? I Oh my god, that one scene in the bookstore and I went... Okay, 1998. <laughs> <laughs> right? right? Very strange to watch this in 2022, but all right. Oh, uh, and I mean, also kind of weird just to watch it in 1998 where he's supposed to, you know, be building up his stand-up legacy. And he's like, you know what I want to do? Make some money being in a Nora Ephron flick. So I think that this ticks all of the boxes. You know, it, it qualifies as a romantic comedy. Uh, so I'll, I'll give Nora Ephron that. It is, she, this is a rom-com. It is, it's romantic if you don't think about it. And it's hilarious if you don't cry at it. It even hits some of the high point tropes of enemies to lovers. You know, the whole like opposites attract, you know, vibe there where she's a ray of sunshine and he's just, you know, a grumpy, mean capitalist who can guess how much her bookstore makes in revenue every year through $350,000 last year. Oh my God. He's so condescending and smug. And then she has what I actually thought was a genuinely great piece of dialogue where she says, instead of a brain, a cash register, instead of a heart, a bottom line. Yep. No, that was good. Why couldn't we have more of that? I, I think that's, I think that's why I think this movie just fails so hard for me is because like, I, I, she's clearly brilliant and, and knows herself, but then like, she just, 
I, it, I, it lets it all go. I, I, I mean, like, I don't know. That, that's where, like, this just feels kind of all kinds of wackadoodle. I think, too, that, I mean, clearly this woman doesn't, neither of them have a good track record for picking people, right? Like, look at who they're with at the beginning. Why are we trusting them now? <laughs> I don't think we should. I think that's the real takeaway from this movie. You you picked bad in the past and you picked bad again. Third time's the charm. Go, where's the sequel where they break up with each other and, and he marries Jeff Bezos and... <laughs> oh my God, yes. Yes, post-Jeff Bezos's um, divorce, but pre-penis ship into space. It's a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, geez, what a life to lead. And you know, he would be really fast. Uh, Joe Fox would be really fast to get his stories on the internet. He's already finding a wife there. Yeah. He's like, I met the woman of my dreams. I am the man of her nightmares. <laughs> right, you know, Y2K, he's on the, he's still on the internet. He's not scared. That's also the breakup scene with Frank was just so great when she's like, actually, I don't like you either. <laughs> um, But yeah, so just really quick to get in some of the highlights that I feel like I have to mention they are complete non sequiturs from one another. Okay, great. Um, first is a statement that half of the traffic in New York City in the 90s was uh, from filming Nora Ephron rom-coms. Wow. Yes, that's not a fact. It's an opinion. Um, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's true. I think if you check the Department of Transportation records, it is correct. Um, oh, actually, fun fact that has nothing to do with ro- romantic comedies and everything to do with a Christmas movie. But you know Elf with Will Ferrell? They filmed, the last day of filming is the montage of him running through New York City in an Elf costume. And it was just like him and the director. And they, they caused traffic accidents in the Lincoln Tunnel because why the fuck is Will Ferrell walking through Lincoln <laughs> Tunnel in an elf costume? <laughs> oh my God. That's some real facts for you right there. That's an actual fact. But anyway, continue. I can just imagine them like submitting the claims to like, you know, Allstate or whatever and then being like, what the fuck? You rear-ended somebody because of... Susan, do you see this? Is it Will Ferrell? How did... Susan, it's the third one today. It's the third one today. It's Will Ferrell. Um, and then also the... <laughs> sexy misogynistic covering of her mouth to stop her from speaking when she's sick and just breathing germs all over that hand also him just marching into her apartment sir you're her mortal enemy you put her out of business and you come here with flowers and you just enter her home but chelsea they're her favorite flowers no i don't she can buy her own she can't buy her own flowers she has no income anymore he put her out of business she has savings she has savings she tells them she has savings she can take her savings she can buy some flowers and then figure also okay i want you to put into context how much of a tragedy this is according to the sign on the store it was open for 42 years so this is 1998 which means that the store opened in like 56 or something like that and her mom owned the store? Do you not understand what, like, that's, like, unheard of for a woman to own a store? And, like, e- even if it wasn't originally her mom's store, even if, like, she bought it from someone, still, she grew up in that store. And if she's 30 in 1998, then that means she was born in, like, 60-something, which means 
she's been there for a while and like that's wild like women couldn't have their own credit cards until i don't know 70 something so like the, 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 this is more than just books this is just like it's just so sad I'm sorry, continue. I- no, that is absolutely, absolutely correct. And then there's also the another moment of attempted redemption where she's like, I'm writing a children's book and I would have never had this much time to write if I was running the store. What a blessing that my mother's legacy was destroyed by corporate greed. I do like that Birdie had the moment of like, I'm super wealthy. I invested in stocks. <laughs> now I'm just like, you know, a bajillionaire. You would never know. I worked in a, ch- a children's bookstore for fun. I have so many questions. I want like a, a tell-all memoir from Birdie more than I want most things. I think we have to write it. I think we would just have to write it. That'll be our next creative project. We'll have to work it in between, you know, future episodes of this because it's going to be a hit success because people are going to like, comment, and share our podcast. Love it for a screening. Tell your friends. <laughs> exactly. That'll that'll just be the hat the the catchphrase. Love it for a screening. Tell your friends. We'll just rip it completely. So, do you want to hear my my three fixes for this movie that I could make it better? Please. Okay. So I've thought about this, and this is from from the like least amount of work to the most amount of work. Okay. Like we're basically the the third one is gonna be like we're just writing a new movie. But so my first thought, easiest way to fix this film, how about Joe Fox likes to read? Make him a reader. A concept. Because the only time we ever see him reading a book in this film is when it's in the, the first, I think it's the first montage. She tells him to read Pride and Prejudice. So he's attempting to read Pride and Prejudice and fine. That's not your thing. That I don't care. But like we never see him reading another book. So clearly he's just a businessman. He doesn't actually have a heart for it. And I feel like if he had been a reader, then like maybe he's trying in his own way to like contribute to this community of book lovers. Instead, he's just a businessman that hears... That's here to make a buck and just absolutely crush. Yeah, just exactly. You heard it here first, (laughs) uh, folks. Joe Fox destroying children's literacy. (laughs) He one book at a time. Before Joe Fox, they were hooked on phonics. Now they're hooked on meth. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been a PSA. Fix number two. This requires a little bit more work. Instead of Joe Fox being this bookstore magnet, this, you know, third fox that's from a long line of foxes that have... What does a fox do? No, you smoke a fox out of a hole. Never mind. That was a bad analogy. I thought I was going somewhere with that. Anywho, (laughs) we'll just forget I said that. Okay. Instead, we make Joe another indie bookstore owner. And so we're going to actually have a rivals to lover story because they are competing in some way or maybe they just don't like each other, okay? But now Fox Books comes in and they begrudgingly become allies and then through that allyship, even if they end up failing in the end, through that allyship, they form a beautiful 
love story. So two New York indies take on big books in the Big Apple. You know what I mean? It writes itself. You have him be adult fiction and have him be like, huh, children's literature, that's for children. (laughs) I Shame. That's silly for an adult to love. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, now are you ready for the piece de resistance? The the best the best fix for this movie. It's a lot of work, but I I'm committed to this storyline. NY152 is actually a prickly but well-read lesbian <gasps> with a soft, mushy center. Perhaps she's Christina's roommate, or maybe she and maybe she has some like younger siblings or nibblings or something that she can bring into the store. And she's built up walls after heartbreak, okay? But the anonymity of the internet allows her to be honest and vulnerable in a way she hasn't been able to be in years. So when she meets shop girl, she's opening up, but it's only in this very controlled environment. But then eventually, you know, so we can still have the antagonism between the two of them, you know, because maybe she's Christina's roommate and they don't like each other, or maybe she's come into the store and they didn't get, you know, but then they end up meeting, right? And then, and then a twist, a twist for you, this lesbian, NY152, she works for the Fox family and she hands Catherine the key to destroying them. Ah, oh, yes, yes. And I have, okay, I have the key. Okay. It's because none of their building permits are legal. <gasps> oh my God, I love it. It's an absolute Chills. scheme. They find out that they've been like in recklessly endangering workers. None of their zoning permits are right. They've been, like, you know, illegally buying storefronts, something like that. And, oh, this is where Greg Kinnear's character could come in. Because I think that we should keep him. No, we can keep him. Yeah, I think we should keep him. And he'd be like, see, instead of, but maybe, instead of his whole thing being like, I think that technology is evil and that your toaster will kill you in your sleep, that... Instead, he's like a, ooh, what if he's like a woo-woo, like, homesteader conspiracy sort of person who's like, oh, you know, capitalism is going to kill you, so we have to eat off the land. But he lives in New York City. Like, it makes no sense why he's obsessed with this, but he has a countertop composter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That feels on brand for him. I love it. Yeah. Honestly, I think that's the su- superior film. I- I've written it. Um, somebody uh, execute it. I agree. I agree. And we'll keep the same title. Yeah, you've got mail. It's still the same concept. I think actually that would have enhanced the the storyline that's actually utilizing the internet to like connect two people. I feel like they could have done a lot with like anonymity. They could have done a lot with like, it's the, it's the, it's the dawn of this type of communication. And I don't feel like they, they tapped into the possibilities enough and all right, maybe because it was 1998, maybe people weren't, but I feel like people are creative. I feel like people saw certain things happening. I feel, you know what I mean? Like I'm not, I'm just saying, I feel like they could have done more with it and I don't think they did. And that was honestly the lowest of like, like the the least of my disappointments. You know what I mean? Like the <laughs> least of my worries. Like I was so mad about so many other things. All right, let, we got we got to talk about the actual, actual romance, Madison, because we didn't address the fact, or at least I didn't address the fact that, Okay, he goes to meet her. He realizes who it is. Right. He goes in. If I'm being sympathetic, fine. He didn't tell her because in the moment it didn't feel right or whatever. She says whatever 
kind of mean jibe to him, even though he said so many other things to her. Whatever, fine. He he got his little ego bruised. He walks away. But then he continues to stay in contact with her. And then to top it all off, he continues to stay in contact with her while also forming an in-person relationship with her as himself is playing both sides. And meanwhile, she has absolutely no idea. It feels like a fucking violation. It feels like it feels like a violation. It feels manipulative. And I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. You cannot continue. He 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 he's gathering information behind the scenes when she doesn't know who she's talking to. He's using that in person. And fine, maybe he doesn't commit an actual crime, but this is I'm still feel like this should go on the tally board for crimes against women. Misdeeds against wrongs against women. Yes. So, okay. So, insert crimes against women sound here. Yes. Absolute tally mark here. That is the biggest number one crimes against women. Um, smaller crime against women when they are waiting outside of the cafe and Dave Chappelle looks in. Oh my God. Yes. Oh my God. They have the whole conversation of like, what if she looks like, you know, an ingrown toenail or whatever? I don't fucking care how they put it. Um, and then he's like, She's pretty. She looks an awful lot like Kathleen Kelly. You said she was pretty. And he's like, yeah, she's pretty. But why are you comparing her to Kathleen Kelly? Oh, because she is Kathleen Kelly. And But he was like, I knew she was pretty. I knew she had to be pretty. Uh, yeah, I hate. I hated that so much. I hated that scene a lot. I think that's very indicative of, you know, uh, the... I feel like, okay, I feel like if this movie was made now, I feel like that is one thing that would absolutely not be able to be in the film. Yeah. Like, uh, but I think in 1998, I mean, even now that's still like, but I, I just don't think that Hollywood would actually film that scene now. No, no, it would. Well, here's the thing. If this was filmed now, okay, in the ultra great version where you have, you know, lesbians tearing down, well, I guess if we keep Greg then, one bisexual, one lesbian tearing down Fox books. All right, so if we had our ideal version that we discussed before, what would have happened is, if it was two women, okay? That's all we need to say. If it was two women, there would be a FaceTime. If it's a modern times, there would be a FaceTime before to make sure that they weren't gonna get murdered. And I realize that this is in 98. It plays into the anonymity factor. It's also very new. You know, people didn't have the catfish fear as deeply ingrained in them yet. I get that. Yeah, no, it just, it would not happen in a modern movie today. Nor should it. So we have two crimes against women tallied. Trying to think if there's any other truly significant ones. Third crime against women, Birdie not getting to have her cyber sex because of the busy signal. Yeah. She deserves it. That's just rude. The life she's led, she deserves everything. She deserves all Hashtag of it. Hashtag Team Birdie. Yeah. Team Birdie for the win. All right. How do you feel? What's your overall, if you could just sum this up in a single sentiment with this being the first kickoff of all of it? Um, well, I think I'm living up to my title of cynic. Um, <laughs> I, I honestly, I was going to be real because I knew this was about, okay, also, I don't know where because I've tried for the life of me, I cannot find it, but I at some point saw a description of the film and it said two bookstore owners 
which is very misleading. So I actually thought like, okay, like I could maybe get behind this. Um, I very quickly realized, oh no, I absolutely hate this film, but you know, so I was nervous for about the first, I don't know, five minutes of the film. I was like, oh no, what if I actually like it? This will be a bad first episode, but I, I no, I didn't like it. So um, my final thoughts, I don't really think this is a good rom-com for people that like rom-coms. I don't think this is, this is definitely not a good rom-com for people that like myself don't really like the genre, don't gravitate towards it. Um, and this is not a good look for uh, the book industry. It's not, <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good look for uh, meeting people on the internet um, because I feel like a better tagline could have been... Uh, the per- <laughs> the person you pass on the street might secretly be your arch nemesis. <laughs> exactly. Oh, God. My final thoughts on this is it fits into the rom-com canon. I live for Meg Ryan. I love Nora Ephron. This is a terrible movie. <laughs> okay, I know that this is not the only time that Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks have been paired together. Do you, have you seen other ones and would you say that maybe the other ones like do I have hope if if, so, if I ever okay. see this pairing again will it be better they were also together in sleepless in Seattle and I'm not gonna lie to you they I think this was actually yeah so this happened in 1993 and the plot just is weird so Tom Hanks is a widow and his son calls in to like a radio talk show in an attempt to find his dad a new wife we'll add this on to the list is that the precursor to the Mary-Kate and Ashley billboard dad? <laughs> I have no idea. I don't think I actually saw that one. Oh my God. You found a chisel in my Mary-Kate and Ashley armor. I don't think I've seen that one. Oh my God. Well, now that's going on the list. Um, you know, that's a great question. Uh, I have no idea. But uh, so that Sleepless in Seattle is actually the first Nora Ephron movie that Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks star in together. And I think that Nora Ephron was sort of playing with the idea with like pairing them like that and then her constant use of Meg Ryan. I think that she was really playing into that old Hollywood style of just like having the same people like on retainer, but it doesn't get better, buddy. It doesn't get better. All right, well. What would you rate? the watchability score. And since this is the first go of this, we have to explore, we'll probably explain it every time in the future. So the watchability score is one through five, one being the worst, five being the best. And it's like a walkability score of what you would see on Zillow, um, where it's like, oh, it's near, you know, public transportation, like that exists in America. It does in New York where this is set. So we'll keep up with it. So one, uh, you are stranded in the desert. Two, you are uh, at a backroads barbecue where you are afraid that you might get blown up by like a firework or shot by a shotgun, but they have like really good barbecue. So there's redeeming qualities. Three is your place is kind of nice, uh, but you are across the way. You can see the naked neighbor or uh, you're like strip mall in suburbia land. Those are of equal measure depending on which one you want to use. Four, you are four blocks from a transit stop, and then five, the best coffee in the entire place, in the entire city, is right downstairs from you. So how would you rate your watchability score? I mean, look, uh, 
I didn't like it at all, but I think I'm going to give it a two for Backroads Barbecue because Birdie is great. And also the the joke about him being a rooftop killer was was good. So so I think it it had it had very small moments. So I, I can't say it's the worst thing. I would agree with that. Um, you're going to walk away from this with really good barbecue. They smoked it for like 24 hours. Uh, but you are going to get popped in the ass by an eight-year-old with a bottle rocket. That's the first episode of Love at First Screening. Um, turned out neither of us loved this one at first screening or like eight screening. Would I watch it again? I would. I would. You would watch it again? Absolutely, I would. I would absolutely not watch this again. <laughs> I would not. Mm-mm. I'm so glad. I think that our next one is going to be a complete diversion from this entirely. Sort of. We're still going to have rich guy, not rich chick. 2007's Music and Lyrics featuring Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore. And you will be in for a ride. There's music. There are musical numbers. Okay. Mm-hmm. That can either be great or terrible, so bring it on. Hugh Grant pelvic thrusts. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't like that image. I don't want it. Take it back. <laughs> All right. So everyone should what what does everyone else say? Rate, review, follow? Yeah, well let's be let's be like all the all the all the good podcasts. Yeah. Yeah, rate, review, follow, send it to your friends, start a cult in our name. Tell your grandma. Um, yeah, love it for a screening. Tell your friends. Yeah, if you if you want to say hi, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the laughs pod. That is T H E L A F S pod. P O D. Uh, Yep, POD. <laughs> that's that's on Twitter and then love at first screening on Instagram. And we're love at first screening at gmail.com if you wanna send us an email and let us know what what rom coms you'd like us to maybe possibly destroy for you. <laughs> I promise I'll love it regardless. <laughs> I'll probably hate it. <laughs> All right. Until next time. <laughs>